chapter 13 of Acts, there is reference to the word of the Lord seven times. In fact, look with me at verse 5. It says, when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John as their assistant. Look over at verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Verse 42, we read, And when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Then down in verse 44, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. In verse 46, again, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you rejected and judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And finally, in verse, not finally, but in verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. What a beautiful statement that is. They glorified the word of the Lord. The Bible declares in the Old Testament that God exalts his word above his name. Then in verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all of the region. If you think that's a lot of times, and you should because it is in one chapter, to mention the word of the Lord, it's done for a reason. But... What might interest you even more is that if you were to get a concordance, a good one, not like the one in the back of your Bible, I mean a complete one, and search for every time the word of the Lord or the word of God or the word of salvation is spoken of in the Scripture, you'd come up with 1,153 times is reference to the word of the Lord. Now, there's always an emphasis on it in the book of Acts because of the power exerted when you not only live by the Word of God, but declare, speak the Word of God, not as an incantation or a formula, but you preach the Word of God, and as we heard tonight, the payoff. It dramatically changing the way a person thinks. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews, the Word of God is living. It's active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Jesus used the word of God when Satan was tempting him. He said over and over again, it is written. And finally, the devil split. When we read chapter 13, I think the conclusion we must come to is what an honor it is to be used by God to lead someone else to Jesus Christ. And chapter 13 mentions the Word of God seven times because it shows us that with the honor comes the armor or the ability. We don't spread our own word or our own opinion or our own agenda, but when we preach the Word of God, God works. And I've got to agree with the sister who shared tonight. It's the greatest feeling. It's the greatest experience when God works through you. Remember the first time you led somebody to Christ? When they prayed that prayer and they bowed and accepted Jesus Christ right there in front of you? How awesome that was. You saw the power of God at work in your life. William Barclay said, the final proof that a man himself knows Christ is that he can bring others to Christ. 
Well, Paul the Apostle was doing that all along on his journey. And we're going to begin in verse 42, and we want to look at four main lessons or divisions of this last paragraph. And first of all, the method of their ministry was attractive to people. In verse 42, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, get this, the Gentiles begged. What a strong word that is. They didn't request, they begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. In other words, they ministered in such a way as to make the gospel attractive to people. They wanted to hear more. They weren't enough. They were thirsty for more. You know, the Bible says that you are the salt of the earth. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. If salt loses its savor, how can it be made salty again? One of the characteristics of salt is that it creates a thirst. If you sit down at night and watch Star Trek after Sunday evening Bible study late at night, and you sit down with some blue corn tortilla chips, and you munch them down and you have salsa, well, there's salt in them. Pretty soon you're going to want water or a Coke or something to wash it down with. The salt creates a thirst inside your mouth. And these guys operated in such a way, the method of their ministry was attractive. They didn't turn people off. They didn't come in and just blow doors and make them feel condemned and guilty. They did it in such a way that it was attractive to them. And so they begged that they would come back the next Sabbath and preach the word of the Lord to them. Remember, Jesus said, happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be what? Filled. In other words, you have to have the knowledge of your need before you have the need met. You have to know that I'm thirsty before you get a drink of water. You don't get a drink of water unless you know you're thirsty. You don't eat something unless you're hungry. Well, at least you shouldn't eat something unless you're hungry. Of course, most Americans do anyway. But suppose that you own a a food business, uh, a mobile truck, where you can cook burritos and hamburgers in the back. If you wanted to make a killing and make a lot of money, would you park in front of Bennigan's right around dinner time? And as people were coming out the doors, try to sell them on a burger or fries or a burrito? You wouldn't make much money. If you were wise, you'd go to a construction site around 12 noon. When those guys are sweating, they're working hard, they're hungry. And at that point, they recognize their need. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're going to be filled if you're there. And so it is with sharing the gospel. We're to create a thirst. We need to be there at the right time. Share the word of God in such a way that it's attractive to people. And then be able to meet that need and lead them to Christ. Listen to what it says in the book of Colossians. Let your conversation be always full of grace, but seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I think of Paul and Silas. A few chapters later, in fact, we're going to read about it in a few weeks, they get put in jail. And as they're in jail and they're in stocks and their arms are above their heads in a Roman prison, they start singing praises to God around midnight. It's midnight. All the prisoners want rest. And the keeper of the prison probably was thinking, shut up. But then he was thinking, these guys are prisoners and they're singing praises. Why? 
And it says all of the prisoners were listening intently to them as they were singing to God. Now they weren't in prison and saying, Hey, I'm in chains, but you're in chains of darkness and you're on your way to hell. Though it would have been true, and I suppose there are times to be that direct. But they didn't do that. They sang praises to God and demonstrated their love for God. And we are told that the jailkeeper at an earthquake came to them and he said, What must I do to be saved? I want to be saved. Whatever you got, I want it. Your conversation is filled with grace. It's seasoned with salt. And whatever you are giving off, I want to be a part of it. You see, the character of Jesus Christ is so attractive, we dare not cloud it. And see, I think that's the problem. People have problems with church and churchianity, don't they? The most of the complaints you've ever heard from people is, well, there's hypocrites, well, they do this and they beg for money or whatever. Have you ever heard a person say, you know, I've hung around Jesus quite a bit. I don't like him. No, the people that hung around him in the New Testament were infinitely attracted to him. There was an aroma of his personality that they enjoyed, but we can cloud it over. Charles Boatman said, I guess we just can't get away from the fact that there's always a package around our Christianity. Let's just make sure that the package doesn't create false impressions or promise more than it should. But most important, we should try to make the wrapper so transparent that the world can see the quality of our faith and feel that they can't live without it. That's what these guys did. They went in, they shared. The Gentiles came out and said, Hey, please, we beg you. Tell us more. It reminds me of what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, But thanks be to God, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ, and through us, get this, everywhere spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Through our lives, God spreads the fragrance of Jesus Christ, the aroma, the attractiveness of the character of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And it's at that point that I want to comment, because as you're going to read this, the city turns against them, and you're going to say, now wait a minute, one time they're begging them to preach the word, their ministry was attractive, their method was attractive, and then they want to kill them. What's the deal? Well, this is the deal. There comes a division in this city, and people turn against them because those who are not siding and thinking, as the apostles are, desiring, hungry for righteousness, are opposed to it. And if you read on in the scripture I just read you in Corinthians, it says this, To one we are the smell of death, and to other we are the fragrance of life. Uh, In other words, you'll share the gospel and people will be attracted by it, and the same message somebody will be listening to and they'll think, I hate that person. And I hate his message because I'm convicted. And when he shares, I know that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And as long as I remain a sinner, when I hear the gospel message, I'm going to be opposed to it. It's the fragrance of death to some and the fragrance of life to others. And so the method of their ministry was attractive. But look in verse verse 43. The message of their ministry was supportive. For we read, and when the congregation had broken up, Many of the Jews and the devout proselytes, non-Jewish people who hung out in the synagogue, followed Paul and Barnabas, 
who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. The message of their ministry was supportive. Hey, continue. Hang in there. You've experienced God's unmerited favor. Keep tapping that unlimited resource. Now the Amplified Bible, and some of you read out of that, says this in that verse. He urged them to continue to trust themselves and stand fast in the grace, that is, the unmerited favor and the blessing of God. I will never forget a brother who came up to me one time. And he told me about a church service that he attended in which there was an evangelistic call and the people, the pastor was haranguing the people saying that you're worthless and you're not fit for God. And then he gave an altar call of the very minute few who responded. One came up weeping and said, I want to accept Christ. I'm a sinner. And the pastor said, you can't. You're not ready. I don't think it's true, meaningful motive in your heart. You can't do it. I won't let you. And turned her back from accepting Jesus Christ that night. What a switch from that kind of a ministry to urging them. Brand new. They just heard the message. But their message was supported. Continue in the grace of God. Hang in there with the Lord. I think that to most people, grace is so foreign to some people's thinking that it's tough for them to accept the fact that God could love me unconditionally without merit. You mean God loves me for who I am? I don't have to deserve His love? I don't have to prove to Him that I'm a nice enough person for Him to love? Well, you can't do it anyway if you tried. Because you're not. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know that. One of the... Most famous sayings, I heard it growing up, I bet you did too. God helps those who help themselves. You know, I thought that was in the Bible. Until I read it. And I thought, I've read the Bible, it's not in there, maybe it's in another version. It's not. But I was told that it was. In fact, the other day I was told recently by a guy who was talking, he said, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible really teaches God helps the helpless. That's what grace is all about. Lord, I'm helpless. All right, I'll save you if you want to be saved. Now continue in that unmerited favor and I'll grow you up. The message of their ministry was supportive. Grace emphasizes two things. Number one, the helpless poverty of man. And number two, the unlimited kindness of God. You are poor. You have nothing to offer God. You are estranged from God. But God is rich in kindness. Ephesians 1, the first few verses, paints that picture. The extreme spiritual poverty of man and the kindness of God. Grace is God's plan in light of our needs. Somebody put it this way. There's four parts to it. Our condition, depraved. God's character, holy. Our need, a substitute. God's provision, a savior. And so, after one message, these Gentiles were hanging on every word because the method of their ministry was so attractive. And then the message of their ministry was so encouraging and supportive. Hang in there. Continue in the grace of God. Let's move on to verse 44. 
And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Can you imagine that? Thoughts that were going through the minds of these apostles. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken of by Paul. Let's call this the movement of their ministry was obstructed. It was attractive. It was supportive, but then it was obstructed. There were enemies who were turning the whole city against them. You know why? Simply this. And I think if you're a believer, even if you're a baby believer, I think you're going to be able to understand this. Whenever God works, Satan works. Whatever God is for, Satan hates. And whatever God does, Satan opposes. So if you dare step into the arena of service to Almighty God, Don't expect hell to give you an encore and a standing ovation. They will only give you a standing ovation if you're complacent and you don't step into the arena of evangelism. Because that's hell's desire for you as a Christian, that you won't share. But if you don your armor and go out there and be aggressive, you're a dartboard. You're a target of the enemy. Remember the book of Nehemiah? As Nehemiah is with the Jews rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They've come back from captivity, some of them. And Sanballat and Tobiah and some of the enemies came against the Jews who were rebuilding the wall. And they started ridiculing them. Trying to down their morale. Tell them this will never succeed. God isn't in this. You'll never make it. And there was an attack because they were building the wall God told them to build. Well, anytime you do what God told you to do, you can expect that kind of activity. A man went up to Charles Finney, who was a lawyer slash evangelist. I should say he was a lawyer, repented of it, and became an evangelist. But (laughs) the truth of the matter was he really was a lawyer in upstate New York, and God just got a hold of his heart. And uh, he quit the practice of law and went into preaching the gospel through towns and He was preaching one evening and he spoke on the devil. A man came up to him and said, Dare you believe in a literal devil? And Finney, with all of his class, instead of trying to explain theologically, he just said, You try opposing him a while and you'll see if he exists or not. You step into the arena of service of God and you'll see that there's a real enemy who's after your soul and after the hampering of your ministry and your service to the Lord. Whenever you step into that arena, you can expect it. And the more aggressive you become, the more aggressive Satan will become. And I bring that up because every now and then a Christian will come and say, I don't know if I'm in God's will. Things aren't running smoothly. I'm trying to do this, but things aren't running as smoothly as they should. Maybe I'm not in the perfect will of God. Well, that's possible. It just depends where your opposition's coming from. If you're getting the right kind of opposition from the enemy, from the enemies of the kingdom of God, it probably is the best indicator that you're right on target. The right kind of opposition can be one of the road marks that you're on the right track and doing the will of God. Notice this in that verse. It says, When the Jews saw the multitudes... They were filled with envy or jealous resentment. They were jealous. The Jews were jealous because they ran the synagogue and these guest speakers had a larger assembly now than the Jews had. 
who were trying to keep tabs on this movement of God. Keep it under restraint. And so there was a jealousy that broke out because, in effect, their church is larger than my church. And so they tried to persuade people to not hang out with these disciples. The Stoics in the Greek days defined envy as grief at someone else's good. Grief at someone else's good. In other words, when someone else gets blessed in an area where you personally have a need, how do you feel? When they come up to you and they say, I just got to tell you, God has blessed me this week. God has healed me this week. I led a person to Christ this week. God blessed me financially. And you're thinking, God didn't bless me financially. I prayed and I haven't been healed. And it's grief at someone else's good. And that kind of attitude, if not kept in check by repentance and change, will ruin the person who has it. Remember one of the most famous parables Jesus taught of the prodigal son? And who is it we always focus on when we go through that parable? The prodigal son. But there were two prodigal sons in that parable. One was the first who spent all of his money on riotous living. But the other prodigal son was a prodigal estranged from the love of his father out of jealousy and envy. Let me read that account to you. You don't have to turn to it. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided up his property between them. And the story goes on and on and on. The guy goes out, ruins his life. He comes to himself and he says, I'm blowing it. And the story goes on. It says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was angry and ticked off. Uh, You know that I'm not reading it right. And if you don't know I'm not reading it right, I'm reading it wrong, just for your benefit. It says, he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and said, hey, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother said, praise God. Again, that's not what it says. Now listen, I do that to accentuate how potent that verse I'm about to read is. That's what he should have said, don't you think? His own fleshly brother who wasted all of his money, the inheritance of his father in advance. He could have been killed. He's back safe and sound. Shouldn't the brother rejoice with him? No. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders Yet you gave me, you never gave me a young goat 
so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice how he puts it, not when my brother, but when this son of yours. Ever watch parents do that? Oh, my son is so wonderful. But when he's bad, your son has been acting up. All of a sudden there's a switch. This son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fatted calf for him. Basically, that parable reveals two types of sinners. One who is very visible and open in his sin, flaunts it so that everybody says he's a sinner. The other is a religious sinner who has envy and jealousy in his heart because he has grief at someone else's good, like the Stoics defined it. Someone else is blessed more than I am. And this person, instead of counting his blessings, counted all the blessings he didn't have. You never did this. You never did that. That's jealousy. That's envy. Point is this. It is possible to be laboring in my father's field and not have my father's heart. It's, in fact, it's more possible in full-time ministry. To be out laboring in my father's field and not have my father's heart for the people I'm ministering to or the people who are co-laboring with me in the ministry. Someone said, criticism is often a form of self-boasting. I think that's right. I heard a story of a old pastor and a young pastor. And the old pastor had a church in a downtown area of a large city on the East Coast. It was a church that had been there for probably a couple hundred years, at least 150. And as what often happens, the downtown area of the city starts decaying. People start leaving it, and people were starting to leave his church. And... More people every week were dwindling away from his church. And uh, one Sunday evening, the pastor came to church, had a Bible study ready, and there was about five people who had come. This time, he was just frustrated. He said, where's everybody? Everybody sat timid, but one bold young man stood up and said, Pastor, most of the people have left and are going to this church a couple blocks away. The pastor was stunned for a moment, but he said, Is the church good? It's pretty good. I hear that they just preach the gospel. Is the pastor good? Here he's really good. Worship good? Here it's great. Pastor said, let's go. What a great attitude. Instead of being envious that someone else is good, he said, well, let's go. If God's doing the work, let's go with it. Let's go with his flow. Instead of being envious at what God is doing or not doing, in someone else's life or your life. So the movement of their ministry was obstructed. And finally, verse 46 through 52, let's read it. And Paul and Barnabas grew bold, and they said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, and get this phrase, and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Really, that's what God will do at the end times. When he judges the world and a person says, I I almost accepted you, you know. I heard, but I rejected. Basically, you didn't regard yourself worthy of eternal life, and it was a free gift. Behold, he says, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, and he quotes Isaiah, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad And they glorified the word of the Lord. The Jews were mad at them. 
But the Gentiles were pretty stoked. Because they were recipients of the grace of God. And verse 48 puzzles some people at the end. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all of the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. (laughs) And you get those messed up and boy. And the chief men of the city. You get the chief men of the city, it's just as bad. And raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. That they shook the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'd like to put this under the final title and that is the momentum of their ministry was authoritative. They stood up boldly. And instead of saying, well, okay, goodbye, he said, let me tell you something. God told us to share the gospel with you as a divine commandment. If you don't want to accept it, fine. Jesus then told us to shake the dust off our feet. And the aroma of life to the others, it was the aroma of death. And there comes a point when you shake the dust off your feet. You be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you attract people. And if people turn against you and spurn it and push you off and use it as an opportunity to blaspheme Christ, you say, fine. If you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, I have nothing more to say. They shook the dust off their feet, they went on, and they preached the gospel in other regions. But verse verse 47, it's interesting that Paul quoted that. He said that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul was ready to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. And I know that... Many of you God is raising up and speaking to over the last several years and months and weeks, days. God has been speaking to you more than ever before. As you see what's happening, the final curtain of history seems to be hanging above us. You say, well, if we just get the supply of Mideast oil, we'll be fine again. Well, you know what? The Mideast oil, which is the primary resource for the world, experts say by the year 2025 will be totally depleted. Totally depleted. And unless we have other alternate sources, we won't make it. And God is speaking to some of you to leave your place of comfort and your place of uh, where you feel at ease and comfortable here and you fit into your niche to maybe stir up the nest and take you to different places of the country or different places of the world. And Paul was ready to go to the ends of the earth. What a difference in attitude between the Jewish people who really hated Gentiles and God who loved them. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created by God as kindling fire for the fires of hell. God saw them as a harvest to be reaped. And Paul was ready to go to anyone who would hear the word of God. In verse 48 and 49, we have the divine side of evangelism and we have the human side of evangelism. On the divine side, it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Or as many as were enrolled, is the literal translation. Who are stuck in God's book of life. As many as were ordained or appointed, believed. Now, there is a constant theme running through Scripture. And if you pick up on it, you'll rest easy. And that is called the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens on this planet without the direction or the allowance of God for it to happen. He has not vacated the throne and gone to the Bahamas and come back and said, while I was gone, a war broke out. God is still in control managing the affairs through His providence and through His sovereignty. 
In Acts chapter 2, Peter puts these two things together when he says, This man Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This was God's plan, but you still made a choice and you're responsible for it. So there's a divine side. God has chosen people. There's a human side. You must choose yourself. That's a mystery. I can't fully explain it. Calvin can't fully explain it. Arminius can't fully explain it. Everyone I've read can't do a perfect job on it. If you could figure this out, you'd be God. And that's what's so God about God. He knows more than you do. The disciples by choice said, I'll follow you. They obeyed him. It was their choice. But then he said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. What? No, no. We made the choice. Remember, Lord? We said, all right, I'll follow you. We put down our tools and followed you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. The Bible says that before the foundations of the earth, God chose you in Christ. How does it work? Somebody put it beautifully this way. You walk up to a door. And it says, whoever will come, let him come. Whosoever will, let him come. You look at the door and you think, should I go in? Should I give my life to Jesus? Should I make the choice? All right, I'll do it. I'm ready to do it. And you open the door and you walk inside and there's a banquet table. And you walk up to it and there's a place setting with your name on it as if they were waiting for you. All of a sudden you hear a bang and the door slams behind you and you look back and the other side of the door it says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the earth. You made a choice, but yes, you made a choice. But how did you make the choice? What were the circumstances that God arranged to bring you to that place where you gave your life to Him? Perhaps tonight God is putting His finger on some of your lives to choose you. How will you know if God chose you? By choosing Him. That sounds so simple. It is so simple. Don't make it more complicated than it is. God loves you. And if you're a believer, remember this as you go out in this dark world to preach the gospel. That the method of your ministry is attractive. That the message of your ministry is supportive. And know also that your ministry is going to be obstructed. But finally, the movement and the momentum, as we said in the end, is authoritative. You boldly proclaim the gospel, knowing that some are going to listen and some are. Some will respond and some won't, and it's not your fault if they do or don't. But you let God handle the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now for just a moment, when we consider that what we just read and what we just discussed in your word, We've seen the power of the gospel to change lives as the ministry in the book of Acts moves on. We want to live in such a way that people are attracted to Christ. That we don't cloud the beauty of His character. That we don't stop the aroma and the fragrance of Christ. And some who are hearing this message tonight, Lord, are deeply in their hearts touched and convicted and in their heart of hearts, they want to respond, but perhaps they want to put up a front, a macho image, or something that would keep them from just giving their lives to you. I pray that you won't let that happen. That you would ordain some to eternal life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.